We're excited to see that baby at church. But we got bigger things on our plate today. Um, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for His grace over our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make us keenly aware of the righteousness of heaven and the wickedness of earth and the role you intend for us to play as ushers of heaven to earth, as ambassadors of the gospel, as prayer warriors unrelenting until darkness and strongholds are broken, God, as white, hot, zealous missionaries who take the gospel not only to every corner of La Plata County, but God, to every corner of the globe. And so God, fix our eyes today through your word on things above and not things below. Things below, we have nothing but obstacles and challenges and excuses why the mission cannot be done. But things above remind us that all things are possible in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so fix our eyes through your word on how you time and again have done the impossible. And you've used the obscure, the minuscule, the unlikely, like churches like this. And so Father, rescue our thoughts from doubts that would weigh them down. God, remind us of the works we did at first. God, rekindle love here for your greatness and your grandeur. Come be the pastor and the teacher. Reconnect with your people in a way that missions explode out of this house. That's our prayer. That's the ambition today. And so God, come and do what only you can do in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. You may not... Uh, know me. My name is Colby Corso, and I serve as teaching elder here. I did not predominantly um, grow up in church. I had a little bit of church experience in the Assemblies of God with my grandparents, and a little bit of dabbling in a Baptist church because they had a gym. But by and large, my experience was being raised by pagan parents. In my college years, the Lord staked a claim on my life and and radically changed my existence to be oriented to Him in a way that I've never recovered from. I remember when I first started following the Lord that I was still struggling with just not cursing in between every word because when I was around Christian people at church, they had problems with certain words that we now describe in church with just the first letter, the F word, the S word, the A word, all right? And so I would come into church circles and I had a heart for God, but I was still trying to work things out. And my first ambition, my first drive as, I, as God loved me and captured me was that I wanted to share that. The problem was is that when I came to the Lord, I don't know about you, I didn't know any Christian people that were my age. So I'm in my early 20s and I go out to the places that I used to do drugs and party and I just came in the midst of so many friends of mine and I told them the great things that God had done for me and invited them that if they wanted to see that 
Like, I can't stay in here because of probation, but if you would come outside, I'd love to talk to you about Jesus. And I just look like an idiot. But some of those guys walked outside and came to Christ as a result of that. I left there and began to serve in the church. I hadn't been to seminary or Bible school or any of this stuff. I just came to church because I love God and I wanted to serve. And I wanted to get all in. And before long, our church took a trip to Mexico where we converted uh, a drug compound into an orphanage and began to get missions into my blood in a way, church, to be frank, I've never scratched it out of. And, And I would go to the Middle East and get to experience God saving Muslims and saving Jews. And I would go there and see a country at war. While I was there, I'd get an Uh, a message on MySpace from a girl named Whitney Beams, which I didn't want any girls bothering me from God's work, so I deleted it. The fact, kids, MySpace is like Facebook, old people, all right? And so we'd go this, and, and this began a passion in my life To love God and to invite others into the love of God. Simple. Incredibly simple. Now, church can get way more complicated than that, doesn't it? (laughs) Here's something else that happened to me. Just talk to me. That passion that I had at first has waned at seasons in my life. Is it yours? I get distracted. I look for satisfaction in other places, and my white-hot zeal for God gets turned down. And what was a burning flame for God becomes embers, becomes a few coals, not very often glowing. Here's the thing about first loves. First loves are willing to do things that look foolish. When you're first in love, you'll do silly things. You don't care about staying up late. Old, crusty, married people worry about staying up late. Young people don't. You're looking around and you're wondering, you are, alright? Young love, first loves, they don't care about distance. They don't care about cost. They don't fear. There's no expense. It spares no expense. First loves go anywhere and do anything because they are captivated by love. But we lose that, don't we? We let others quiet us down. Don't be extreme. We quiet ourselves down. People say, slow your roll. And we lose it. And our faith simmers. It fades. And this is why, from last week to this week, as we've talked about missions, we have said, this is why every failure of missions is a failure to pray before it's a failure to preach. 
that we stop talking to God. We quit abiding in God. We, we stop being near to God. And then what is in his heart and what's, what is in our heart become distant things, not the same thing. Every failure of missions is first and foremost a failure to pray. A failure to bask in the marvelous person of God. It's a failure to meet Him. This is why Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, would say, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. This is why lame prayer meetings that do not concern themselves with the Word of God and the mission of God, that care more about keeping sick Christians out of heaven than they care about keeping lost people out of hell, are an assault upon the glory of God. This is why, as we looked in Acts last week, in Acts 4... The church, when they prayed in the face of adversity and persecution and challenge, they did not pray for a time out. They prayed for more boldness to press forward. Because they knew in God's presence, God rekindles. That Christians, though they wane, can rebound. That God can reignite what is dead. He can give new tongues to that which has been silenced. He can create new flames. In prayer, God breathes again the Holy Spirit on flickering coals to stoke them all over again. Do you want that? Because probably for you, it may be similar to me as I looked at this passage we're going to look at today I got nervous about going all in again. Lest I get discouraged or burned. One of the hardest things as a Christian, as I've walked with the Lord for a minute, is not to let my past misswings of the bat affect the next swing of the bat that God allows me by grace. That is... To not let my past failures, to seize God-given opportunities to dictate to me a wrong reaction to future opportunities or present ones. And so, I come here to particularly speak to those that are fretting over lonely embers in their faith. Discouraged. I want to say to you, I come as your pastor to call you to do the things that you did at first. When you first fell in love with God. Things that to the world look like foolish things. The uncomfortable things that you did. The costly things you did. The risky biblical things that you did. Things that you did that required you to pray to even have a chance For them to sort out. My prayer in today's time in the word. As lofty as it may be. 
is that some of the most impossible work in the world, namely missions, will be undertaken because someone in here falls in love again with the greatness of God. That the most impossible work in the world, namely missions, would be undertaken by someone here because they fall in love again with the greatness of God. I am not here to twist anybody's arm to go to Guatemala, Ukraine, or any other country. It's simply not as powerful or as motivating as you simply meeting again the greatness of God. No manipulation is going to get the Great Commission done. In the way and in the power and in the glory that the Scripture alone is going to push us. There are, by some estimations, 16,000 people groups, tribes, tongues, languages, people groups in the world you stand right now roughly six to 7,000 of those people groups unreached. Here's an observation so that you understand what stands before you as a Christian. We are nearing the end. And I'm not talking about Obama's the Antichrist or Trump's the Antichrist. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the end of the Great Commission that every tongue, tribe, and nation is reached for the glory of Christ. We are nearing the end. And most of the unreached people groups today are in hard places. That's why they're unreached. All the easy ones are taken. What stands in opposition, why we go, is because for the billion plus Muslims, worshiping the demon, posing as God in Islam, they worship that which is not worthy of the glory of God. Hindus who worship demons are worshiping what is not worthy, and what God alone deserves. They worship what is not great. Animistic witchcraft in Africa is not worthy of Africans' worship. Communists who worship government as God are serving Something not worthy of their soul. We go to tell the all-satisfying worth and mightiness of God. To people who are enslaved to lesser. Simply, church, evangelism is nothing more 
than one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And the greatest tragedy that sets before us, church, the greatest tragedy in this world is that there are more people right now willing to hear the gospel and respond than there are Christians willing to go and share the gospel. That's the tragedy that exists between us talking about missions in this room and the overwhelming need that is at the ends of the earth. Is that there are more people willing right now to hear the gospel and respond than there are Christians willing to go and to share the gospel. I get that from Matthew where Jesus says the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. There is always a greater harvest than there are workers willing to go engage it. In your lifetime, all likely for most of you, all people groups will have the Bible translated into their native language. You have an unprecedented ability to travel that Christians for 2,000 years have not been able to match. You have technology at your fingertips that no other generation of Christians have ever had. You have, American church, a ridiculous amount of resources that no other people in church history have ever had. So here's the thing. To set the context of what we're looking at. This is not a question of resources. Whether we will be the generation that reaches the last people group on earth. It's not a question of resources. It's a question of disobedience. And so we've said... Previous missions month, when it comes to missions as a church, we are either going, we are either sending, or we're disobeying. So I mean to make this simple for you in this passage today. FBC Bayfield. Go to the nations and preach the greatness of God. That's it. Where do I get that textual excuse to make it that simple? I get that in Acts chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, grab it. Let's flip there. Acts 2. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, I'll come back to Pentecost, they were in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. All my Baptist people started squirming the minute I just read that. Alright? Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, notice, it's the sound that draws them. The multitude came together and they were bewildered. 
because they were hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? That creates a problem for them. And how is it that we hear each one of us in our native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygeria and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We, listen, listen. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. That's where I get it right there. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They didn't hear it in Peter's tongue. They heard it in theirs. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? That is, they're demanding for people to translate to them what this experience means. But others mockingly said they were filled with new wine. But Peter, standing up to eleven, shouted with a voice, Amen, Judea, who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose. So pause. What's going on here? First, it happens at Pentecost. Most of us are unfamiliar with Pentecost because we celebrate Fourth of July. We don't celebrate Pentecost. All right? Here's what's happened. The Great Commission happens in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus stands and gives them the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all ethnos, that's the word for nations, baptizing them of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Lo and behold, I'm with you even till the end of the age. Amen. He gives that great commission to them. Many of us think that stops there. But in Acts chapter 1, it says that Jesus stays with them 40 days. Okay? A lot of us, we don't think that. Jesus is teaching them and discipling them in light of the resurrection for 40 days. This is why Christianity is based on the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul at one point talks about even the evidence towards him who didn't walk with Jesus during his life. says, if you have a question about the resurrection, like there's like 500 dudes in this city, you can call up on your cell phone and ask them and they'll tell you about Jesus' resurrection. It was an irrefutable fact that Jesus rose from the dead, and for 40 days spent time with people. After that 40 days, Acts chapter 1 says he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and there's a period there before Pentecost where Jesus has already given the Great Commission, discipled them, and he tells them to tarry in Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit. And they are there waiting. Now we come into Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. This was... A festival, kind of like a harvest festival, post-barley grain, right? So they already collected all the barley. They did their, put their hay bales in the barn, but before they start to do the wheat harvest. So they've kind of got a gap in between these two work periods where they celebrate, they party, they do a trunk or treat. It's like a Christian Halloween, except Halloween's also Christian. So it, it does, a, does a harvest party. Now... This is an interesting holiday because it's like Mardi Gras. Mardi is Tuesday, Gras, Fat, Fat Tuesday. Mardi Gras is this party before Lent in, in like a um, high church calendar, okay? And so they came to this huge Mardi Gras party that was in the thing. 
So people from all over the world, just like they do in New Orleans, descended upon the city and from people all over are gathered. The context is that people from all over the world are there. Many believing, anticipating the Messiah. Some not. Gathered here to party it up. Here's a note I would say about this passage. Nobody is asking Christians to preach the gospel at Mardi Gras. Nobody in this text is asking them or wanting them to preach Jesus. Matter of fact, some of these people might have been there for more than 50 days and were complicit in the execution of Jesus and cried crucify him not two months before. Ain't nobody wanting them to come. Missionaries go where they are not wanted to preach the gospel and make disciples until they are not needed. Most places our missionaries go, they are not wanted, but they're desperately needed. And they stay where they're not wanted until they're absolutely not needed. The truth of the matter is, despite the fact that maybe some of these people have been complicit in the execution of Jesus, the truth of the matter is they preach the gospel anyways. And American Christians need to learn the truth that awkward conversations change the world. Awkward conversations change the world. If you are spending your whole life and every word that comes out of your mouth to avoid awkwardness, you are going to be ineffective in missions. Because there's some hard conversations we need to have with people that we love. Uh, Verse 2 and verse 6 talk about this sound, mighty rushing wind, that comes on them. Now I thought, when I originally thought I understood this passage, that it was them speaking in tongues that drew people. But the tongues here is a plural, the sound is a singular. And it says that the sound draws them. So what's going on here? God essentially pulls the fire alarm to draw all of them to a singular space, go to the gym for this massive pep rally to hear a conversation about the gospel. The word here for languages, it's fascinating because it says that they're going to hear in their native languages. There's a word for tongues, glossé, and languages, dialectus. And it has both of these words at play. It's hard sometimes because I know that we live in light of charismatic churches that will talk about this as an unknown language. Usually, charismatics do not use this passage um, to talk about that, but other passages in, in, in um, 1 Corinthians. And the reason is, is that clearly from this text, they were not hearing an angelic language. They were hearing their native tongue from this text. So while I don't want to deal with that, what I think is even more marvelous is that it uses both glossae and dialectus. That is... They heard it in their own dialect. What does that mean? If you're from Boston, they heard it in Southie. Right? If you're from Alabama, that thing had a draw on it. Right? If you were from Scotland, 
only you understood it because it sounded like you were talking with marbles in your mouth. And they're looking around. It's like, you hear this in my language? No, you hear it in yours? And this is awesome because it created problems. Why did it create problems? It created problems because they're from Galilee. It's the equivalent of trailer trash speaking Chinese. Where did the rednecks learn Arabic? I mean, isn't that essentially what they're saying? And their argument is that they've got to be drunk. It's the hillbillies have been hitting the moonshine. This is not Ivy League. Educated people usually know multiple languages. This isn't Ivy League. This is Beer League. All right? And, and the gospel's going out, and they look at the source of it, and they can't explain how these people know their language or what's going on. And the only excuse for them is that it's, it's wine. Verse 13. Now what's fascinating about these languages is that Isaiah hints at that if God's people will not listen to truth preached in their own native tongue, that as a judgment, Isaiah says, I will speak to you in a foreign language that you do not know. That's a judgment of God. That calls back to our minds the Tower of Babel. That when man in his pride tried to find his own way back to God, works-based religion, and exalt himself to the heavens, God humbled man and divided the languages. Here, not only is Babel, which is where we get Babylon, but the grace of God conquers the curse of Babel. God wants them to understand this message in their native tongue. And what is unbelievable about this is that some historians will argue this is the first recorded worship of God in these languages. First ever. This year, if God in His grace converts people in one of these 6,000 unreached people groups, Somebody this year is going to worship our God in a language for the first time. Does that stagger you? I remember partnering with IMB missionaries and sending college students to work with a particular unreached Arab group And the first time that we had converts in that language, and where they began to congregate as a church, the first time that they began to worship God in that tongue. Do you care more about that than your next vacation? Here... They get to see the grace of God conquer the curse of Babel. Interestingly, from among this list of people groups that it lays out, it moves from east to west. It includes places like today, Iran, Iraq, 
where Babylon was. People that had been previous dreaded enemies like Egypt. It goes across water into Europe. It goes into Africa. It talks about islands and Arabs. It talks about proselytes to other religions or proselytes into Judaism. I've talked about this before. Jesus condemned the Pharisees because they traveled over land and sea to win a single convert. But once they converted them to works-based religion, they made them twice the sons of hell that the Pharisees were. These people who have been proselyted to works-based religion are going to be converted to Christ in this chapter. I say that because we are winning souls away not only from others, but others who are out to win them to beliefs that if they adopted them would make them twice the sons of hell that those other missionaries are. And you know who I'm talking about. That is, church, we have competition for the souls of men. And they notice are from languages and tribes and people that are on the surface not like them. And if you are only going to minister to people like you on the surface, you're going to have minimal impact on the nations. And Jesus never called you to only minister to people like you. He said every ethnos or ethnic group. That includes ones that are not yours. They might on the surface not be like them, but in the deadness of their hearts, they are exactly like you. And their bondage to sin, you could go anywhere in the world and you will find the Bible true. Lost people are everywhere. It does not discriminate by language or skin color. Sinful humanity shares sinfulness. Verse 11, what did they share? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Their response, we hear it. What does it mean? They demand explanation. They demand the Christians make it clear. That is, they didn't just come and do good works. Because good works don't explain themselves. Their explanation is wrong explanation. Their explanation is it's five o'clock somewhere. Chemicals, crazy, drunk. Church, God is looking for messengers to make the gospel clear. Not editors. Peter in the rest of this chapter, if nothing else, makes the message explicit. Listen, listen. Verse, look at 22. Men of Israel, these words, hear these words. What does he just hear? He quoted the Old Testament. If you're not preaching the word of God when you go on missions, you're not doing missions. He just quoted Joel. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. What's he preaching? He's preaching the word of God and Jesus. Verse 23, this Jesus, 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Interesting. 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 36. Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Church, what did they preach? Jesus. And if we are not preaching Jesus, we are not doing missions. At least not in any sense we can say biblically. Look at how interesting the thing is. Many of these people in this crowd likely weren't there at the crucifixion of Jesus, but they say you crucified him. Why? Because sinful humanity from Adam on has a declared war against God. And you have taken up an arm and fired that gun against your creator every time you have sinned. You are not just a passive participant in a war of hostilities against your creator. You've participated with every thought, word, and deed in contradiction to his nature and character and what is right. And they say you are, you are guilty of the same sin that put Christ to death. Lays their sin and lays the gospel at their feet. Uh, Mel Gibson made a movie called Passion of the Christ. And many of you have seen it. Um, throughout the whole movie, he never cameos. Except for one place. There's only one place that Mel Gibson cameos in the Passion of the Christ. And that is, he is the one holding the hammer. It's his hand driving the nails into the hands of Jesus. The only cameo. And the only reason... He's in that is because he wanted to make it clear that it was him and his sin that put Christ to death on the cross. That demanded that Christ have to come and pay that penalty. He says, you crucified and you killed. Peter is making it clear what is the gospel? That Christ, according to Scripture, he quotes Scripture and explains the gospel. Quotes Scripture and explains the gospel. Makes it clear from the Word of God that the Son of God came and died for sins, conquering sin, death, and hell through the resurrection. It is the whole business of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. It is the whole business of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. Now, we have to decide if we are going to be fishers of men or keepers of fish tanks. 6,000 people groups, that's happening on our watch. You were not born 600 years ago, I think. Right? This is ordained by God to be your time in church history, not any other. This is your time. This is on our watch, and what we do 
with the lostness in our world, this is our time. Brothers and sisters, we can fight hell for the good of the nations or we can fight one another while the nations go to hell. We can fight hell for the good of the nations or we can fight one another while the nations go to hell. Choose. Choose. And do not choose lightly. Don't ask God to direct your steps to go on mission with Him unless you're willing to move your feet. Don't ask God to direct the role that you play unless you're actually willing to pray. Don't ask unless you're unwilling to do again what you did at first when you fell in love with the glory of God. I want to encourage you um, to end this. I've served in India before. I have a dear brother learned in unreached people groups language and served there for multiple years. Um, we still have great friends in India. And um, I, I, it was the first time I was absolutely overwhelmed and shocked by lostness in ways I had never comprehended. There are so many people in India, just people coming out of people, just people everywhere. It is overbearing when it comes to sensory overload. The smells, you can see people dying on the street. They, they use their horn like sonar. It's just, I don't, they're just horns and loudness. It, and, and people just get up in your personal space. There's all of you. And I saw some of the most powerful things, most biblical, most book of Acts things in all of my life in India. India changed me in ways I will never recover from. Because I saw God do things there. And I want to tell you a story. Uh, one of my former boss told this story. And I thought it was really powerful of his experiences in India as well. And, um, and I think it's a, a place for us to remind ourselves of the power of God in the face of an impossible task. India has a state in the north called uh, Bihar. The state in India is roughly the size of Tennessee. The only difference is Tennessee's got about 6 million people. All hillbillies, all right? Except for like four hipsters that are in Nashville, all right? 6 million people. Bihar, roughly the same size, has 100 million people inside of it. It's spread, that 100 million is spread across roughly 45,000 villages. Most of those villages live in desperate, destitute poverty. Unlike other parts of India, you can go to the coast and stuff. India has a long Christian tradition in the coast. Matter of fact, they believe that Doubting Thomas, after he shed the Doubting name and, and was reinstated and discipled by Christ after Pentecost, leaves in church history and goes to India. They see Thomas as the first person to plant the gospel in India. And there are Christians that chase their lineage all the way back to that. But the overwhelming majority, over a, like a billion Hindus, live without Christ. In Bihar, it's even worse percentage-wise. 
1% in Bihar of the 10 million people are Christians. That is below average. That is, the vast majority are Hindu who worship a demon as their God. I have been there. I have seen people sacrifice to statues. I've seen it. I have seen temples with child prostitution in India. That's not a second-hand report. I've seen it. I have seen the demonic that these people live under, and it is oppressive to even be in the presence of. The story of my former boss is that this, for him, was the closest experience to the book of Acts that we study today. How grace multiplied inside the church more and more. And the story is of two brothers, Anil and Ari, or Ahari. I'm probably butchering their names. God knows, all right? One, Anil and Ahari, of Anil and Ahari, one was the school superintendent, and the other was a chicken farmer. Both Christians in Bihar, both trying to spread the kingdom, and both. Uh, when my former boss met him, were at the end of their rope because they felt like they had tried everything and they just weren't seeing any fruit from going out and trying to spread the gospel. And so they came to a uh, training that my former boss was at where they were trying to just encourage believers and equip them. And at this training, Anil and Ahari were told at the end of it uh, to go to one of these villages that was unreached with no church, no Christians, Nothing. To go to one of these villages and just say to them, the first person you meet, we come here in the name of Jesus and we would like to pray for your village. Anil and Ahari looked at each other and said, this is never going to work. They're Americans. They understand church growth strategies. This is never going to work. But then they continue to talk to one another and says, nothing we ever do works. Why don't we try? And so they go, and they walk to a village. They actually go all the way through the village or nearly to the end of the village, and nobody comes up till right at the end, and they met a man who saw them and came up and asked, what are you doing here? And so they started their prescriptive line, which sometimes you've done in evangelism. We have come in the name of Jesus. They don't even get to the, I want to pray for your village part. The man interrupts him and says, oh, I heard of this Jesus. Can you tell me more? Neil and Ahari look at each other. Yes, we can. He says, well, wait, wait, wait. I want to go get my friends and my family and gather them together so they can hear as well. Is that okay? Yes. So they... Go back to the man's home. He leaves these people at his home and gathers friends and family to fill the room. Anil and Ahari share the gospel with these people. And long story short, over the next week of sharing Jesus with these people, 20 people Repent and believe the gospel. Twenty people. In a place there's no Christians and no church. This is a village for generation. 
that has worshipped demons, having given their affections to something not great. But because some people went and some people were faithful, because some people actually believed that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, you now have brothers and sisters in Bihar, India. Do you get that? They are gathered, probably not because of the clock, but today they're going to gather and sing. God is so good. Just like you sing. They're worshiping today. Because somebody went and told them of the majesty of God. Simple. It doesn't stop there, though. Anil Nahari turned to these new believers and said, Now that you believe the gospel, you must go somewhere else and go to a vision. Go to a village and say to them, We come in the name of Jesus. We'd like to pray for your village. They, they didn't give an eight-month course on sharing Jesus without fear. I love that course. They just preached the gospel to them and then expected them to go. And the new converts looked at the Bible, looked at what Anil and Ahari had done for their village, and they understood it's right for every Christian to go. See, they hadn't had an opportunity to build up all of our excuses. That only if I needed like two more years of training, then I could go. They just went. Brothers and sisters, now three years later, Anil Nahari has labored to disciple, to equip, and to send out absolutely every single believer. As a result of that faithfulness to go, within three years, that began in that one village, there now are established 350 churches in 350 villages. We're not talking two or three are gathered churches. We're talking churches. Worshiping. In the word. Sending. Praying. My former boss worshipped with these churches. These churches are serious about missions. They are serious about evaluating their church and its faithfulness according to a New Testament grid to determine if they're healthy or not. By whether they're going and sending or not. Anil and Ahari have faced challenges outside the church. They face challenges with new believers inside the church. But the Spirit is pouring Himself out and poking a hole in the darkness of Bihar with gospel light. One of these churches, uh, just a few years ago, that, did not, that didn't exist a year ago, um, my boss joined them for worship, and they went around in the worship service, and one of the things that they did is they had testimony time. They shared testimonies about about how they came to the Lord and how God met them and how they heard the gospel and how they were transformed and moved 
and what God did in their lives. They were going around sharing testimonies, and this quote struck him, and he, he, he kept it and said about how powerful it was. This one man, this, this Indian man who years ago wasn't converted, but now he's a believer, shared before the gospel came, our village was like living in hell. Before the gospel came, our village was like living in hell. Book of Acts, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Do you know in the Old Testament that at the giving of the law in the Old Testament, because of idolatry, 3,000 people perished? Here in the book of Acts, at the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. Let me pray for you. Even now, even here, would you go before the throne of God and ask God to direct your steps of how you are to get engaged with the Great Commission. Some of you are going to pick up one of these prayer books and every day more consistent than brushing your teeth, you're going to labor in prayer for the nations. Some of you are going to write a ridiculous check to send missionaries all over the world. Some of you are going to be retired people, possibly. Like a woman in one of my former churches, in her 60s, decided she wanted to use the rest of her life for what counts. And she moved as a single woman to the ends of the earth to plant churches. Or you're going to be like one of my friends who moved his family to an unreached people with all five of their kids. And they're going to miss birthdays and anniversaries and weddings and funerals. They're not going to be home for Christmas this year. Because they're telling an unreached people group the great things of God. There's going to be some people here who help us logistically figure out how to do more. There's going to be some people here who pray for missionaries like they're their own kids. There are 10,000 ways God might lead any one of us to get in the game. But He is not leading one of us to stay on the bench. So would you take a moment now and allow God to work on your heart to direct your steps about what your role is in this. About what obedience looks like for you.
Mighty are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. Your name is worthy. It is the name above all names. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, move us to act like it. Pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, 